I, um, I often feel this way when I step up to share God's word. I, I, found it, I find it a privilege, and I do so every time I have this opportunity. But I also find myself stirred by the, the movement of God's spirit among us in worship. Some of you are already, many of you kids are already making your way back, and Miss Jamie and the crew back there are ready to continue the excitement next door for you and uh, in the house for us, folks. So um, I, um, I tell them privately, the worship team, but I want you all to know it publicly. They're, they're amazing. And, you know, they are uh, ones that really draw us into the presence of God, I believe, and give us ears to hear truth that God has to say to our souls. And what a secure place to be in, right? It's not, this is not just going to be a pep talk or some kind of, you know, um, uh, locker room, halftime, go get them, guys, gals, let's do this. It's a, it's a God time. We get to hear his voice. Um, <clears throat> so uh, Jesus rose from the dead, amen? amen. He is risen. Yeah, you know what? We said that yesterday and or last Sunday, and people went nuts with it, and it's always a great thing. And, uh, and we can say it again today. It's still true. I saw it on the church uh, moniker as I was driving toward the church, and, uh, and it was really cool to, to just um, be affirmed again. It, it's, a, it's a truth that doesn't get old or doesn't make me tired telling about it and for us thinking about it. So for... 40 days after his resurrection, which was last week's celebration gathering, he appeared to many people in many places, the book of Acts reports. Uh, just kind of a quick catch-up, because we've been away from our study, uh, In Step with the Spirit. It's a verse-by-verse -verse journey through the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, or I have, uh, I think, respectfully changed the label to Acts of the Holy Spirit because I think it's a real showcase of what the Holy Spirit who came in chapter 2 and uh, just changed everything and he continues to do so. So uh, this series started a while ago and it'll continue most of this year. We're in uh, chapter 6 and we'll go through chapter 7 today which if you know your book of Acts you'll know that that's a that's a bit of a journey and it'll make sense in just a moment but so Jesus appears to all these people, and his purpose in doing so was simply to pr prove the unbelievable, to provide evidence that the unbelievable had actually happened. He had risen from the dead, here, here's the catch, just as he said. Okay? So he promised, and he produced on his promise. And you can take that to the bank. You're wanting to take away, grab that one right now and you can leave because it's worth keeping, okay? It's, it's, you got the message from God. What he promises, he produces. Can you say that with me? What he promises, he produces. So you open your Bible tomorrow morning as you do every morning and you read a, a truth from God. Maybe it's a correction and you've got um, to do some things and let the Holy Spirit clean you up on the inside. And then you take next steps, and he says, I promise to never leave you or forsake you. And you might stumble badly in days to come. But he's not going to leave you because he will promise what, what he will produce what he promised. Amen? So that's something that Jesus was up to. 
And he talked a great deal, verse one, uh, verse 3 of chapter 1 in Acts says, he talked about the kingdom of God. Um, so a word about the kingdom of God. There's some confusion. What is it? Well, it was inaugurated, Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God when he returned to heaven. Okay? So God's kingdom would, from that moment on, live on, ready for this? In the hearts of believers. Okay? So it's not a location. We love gathering here at Grace Point. Other people in other churches and places love the same thing. But we don't gather hoping that God will show up. I don't like that language. Why? Because he's living in me. And he's living in you. And I got gas this week at Costco. And he was in my truck with me when I gassed up. Now, now there's a reason for saying it that way. I want you to go, wow, that's kind of a plain, almost uh, weird mix of images. And I hope it'll, we'll get over that. You're at the hairdresser. Jesus is with you in that place. You're at a long line in a grocery store. Jesus is with you in that place. And he's ticked off, too, that the line's long. No, I'm just kidding you. Uh, you get, the point is, you're in, a, you're in a conflict with your spouse or your best friend or roommate or whatever. And if you're a Jesus person, he has a say in how that goes. He wants to influence. He wants to actually make the kingdom of God part of that outcome. It's, it's really a game changer. And then Jesus, uh, this kingdom that would spread, gave this simple statement in chapter 1, verse 8. And he said, you will receive power. He's talking to his disciples. When the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. Then he tells you where? In Jerusalem, where they were, Judea, the surrounding area, Samaria up north, and then he says this, that includes Grace Point Community Church in 2022, to the utmost parts of the earth. So the kingdom is going out. We're going to sing about that in a little bit. Um, and that mission began with a few, and it grew to many, and then it it, it exploded to the multitudes, and um, his message went out everywhere. Um, it was a message about the king of the kingdom to everyone, everywhere, and it continues to this day. So that's the backup to the beginning here. Here's the deal. Ten days after Jesus returned to heaven. We covered all these things in detail in past messages. You can go online and get them. But uh, he, they were standing there and watched him ascend. They left the Mount of Olives and ascended back and disappeared into the clouds and uh, not to be seen again until he returns. Okay? So from that point in chapter 1 of Acts, and it's a 28-chapter book, you, you have this new power that unfolds just the next chapter. You turn the page to chapter 2 and Pentecost happens. It's when the Holy Spirit as promised by Jesus came. And he didn't touch a few. He didn't touch the lucky ones. He touched everyone in that gathering. In fact, 
if that gathering didn't light your fire, you've got, you've got wet wood. I mean, <laughs> it's just not going to happen, right? That was the moment that everybody would talk about for surely the rest of their lives, and here we are talking about it still. And from that moment, almost at breakneck speed, the church just swelled in size. I'm reading at the end or near the end of chapter 2 when it says, those who accepted the message of Peter. Why did he preach a message? To explain what in the world just happened here. It's all kinds of crazy. And he says, let me tell you about it. And from that moment of telling, he finishes his message, his explanation. It says, those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to the number of that day. You talk about revival. It's more than that. This is revolution. This was a change that was seismic, and it, and it spread rapidly. As you might expect, though, not any story in, in, in our experience as humans uh, continues on in the smooth glide north. Where, we, where you, it's just, you got a, you got a, uh, a wind pushing you gently forward, very little effort, very little resistance. You just kind of keep rolling along. You don't need to grease your wheels because they, they just roll along smoothly, right? Well, whenever there's good growth, like I just read in Acts 2.41, there's also bad growth. Here's what I mean by bad growth. Bad growth is my label for opposition that you will face in many forms. And it comes in lots of forms. Let me give you two broad categories. And this will shock you, so get ready for this statement. Uh, bad growth happens not just out there. It'd be an easy message to preach if I simply said, you know, we got good growth going on in here. But it gets bad as soon as you leave and you run into headwinds and opposition and resistance and all this stuff. The truth is there's bad growth. At the same time, there's good growth everywhere you go. So let me give you a couple of examples. So right away, I've talked to you about Peter's explanation because there were people that were in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit came and they were just like, oh, shock and awe. What's going on here? Some, without waiting for the explanation from Peter, concluded, verse 13 of chapter 2, hey, you know what? That it was a scorning spirit. You know, I'll tell you what's going on. These people are drunk. That's what they are. Those religious people are just losing control. They're getting drunk. And, 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 and it was real. It was a rip and a half. And they began to mock this amazing movement of God right from the beginning. So does that help you today? It helps me because there's not a lot of people that are like really, you know, fist bumping about the kingdom of God today. People today just go, what? You guys are crazy. Christians. Don't you see it's a, it's a dying religion? You heard that? It's not. Um, so there was that kind of resistance. And and, and that came right to these, this first church, as we've been calling it. The next wave came just a few chapters later, and it came hard. And it was trouble, it's hard to say this and admit it, with temple authorities. They resisted it. They resented this 
excitement in the air. And we're told why. You don't even have to have it in the Bible to sort of guess. They envied the exciting growth and life that they were witnessing in these people. So they see this and and they call in the ringleaders, principally Peter and John, but some others, and they pull them up and they say, hey, not once, not twice, but several times, stop it. Hush up. You guys, we're, we're giving you this last warning. Stop speaking and preaching and teaching and touching in the name of Jesus. You hear us? And it was driven by this envy. Um, chapter 4, verse 18 is, a, is a, just one example where they hit it hard in that way. And they call them in again and command them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John go, look, we mean no disrespect, but we, we've got a choice to make here. Whether we're going to listen to God or you, and we've made our choice. We're going with God. And of course, they didn't stop them. They wanted in the worst way to stop them, but they didn't. Why? To save their bacon. They knew the crowd would probably turn on them because they had already switched their loyalty to these, this amazing thing going on. The Holy Spirit was working. So who, what side do you want to be on? Is sort of their decision that had been made. And then chapter 5 shockingly shows up. And it involves two people that were, again, within the church. This is bad growth, again. And, and it, it came in the names of a, a, a married couple, Ananias and Sapphira, his wife. And they sold their house. It was great excitement to do so, if you could do so. And you could choose of your own, um, um, on your own. There was no pressure to do so. You could choose to give some of that to help poor people and to expand the gospel. Um, they decided to, they claimed, give it all. They sold a house and they said, here, it's everything. When in fact, they had held back and uh, it was a terrible outcome. They both died and we're told why they died. They died because they lied to the Holy Spirit and God. So they trifled. We talked about that in his, in his holiness. And then comes um, chapter 6, and this is a tension also from within the church. It was uh, a faction that was rapidly gaining speed and steam. Would you look at verse 1 of chapter 6? In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, so that's good growth. The Hellenistic Jews, those are the Greek-speaking Jews among them, complained against the Hebrew-speaking Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution at the food pantry. Okay, lots of detail there, but here's the bottom line. There's a faction. This side of the room's upset at that side of the room. You speak Greek, they speak Hebrew. This has all the potential to split this church wide open. And... Um, and that conflict uh, was addressed um, by uh, a really cool solution. But I want to stop myself for a moment and tell you some wisdom that I was given many years ago. Each of these developments arose as the first church was burning brightly. You can't miss that or you miss, it sounds like I'm making a list of complaints. It's not that. This church was, was burning 
brightly. There was so much excitement, there wasn't a seat available. People were jacked. They were pumped, we would say today. They were so revved up and excited to be there. And, and, and I, I, let me emphasize again, they were burning brightly for a reason. They were, it was the Holy Spirit's presence in them, and it was in all of them. And uh, here's the wisdom. A friend of mine used a, a southern expression to describe negative reactions to positive developments. Okay? Put those two together. The, the gospel is growing. The church is exciting place to be. Lives are being changed. People are surrendering to Jesus. That's positive developments. But there was negative criticism or reactions to it. And my friend says it this way. It's the title of my message, in fact. He said, where there's light, there's bugs. There's bugs. And, and, and I think it's true. I think it's the story of the, well, the, it's, a, it's the longest message in Acts we're going to read this morning. And it has to do with uh, some really big bugs. Um, the last situation I mentioned, by the way, was, uh, was resolved. Um, and in the resolution of it, a man was introduced to us. And he's got a really great name. Stephen. Nice name, huh? He doesn't spell it correctly, and I'm going to ask him about it someday. But, um, and he plays this role of resolving, remember this side of the room is against this side of the room. And he plays a, a role, very practical, hands-on role of addressing that and resolving that tension that had surfaced and had potential to do some destruction. And the, the fix was amazing. It was so amazing, it was like cutting loose an anchor that was holding back the church. Can you imagine? They're making strides, and then suddenly, uh-oh, we can't get along. There's a big problem here. Um, and, and this fix was so significant, it's worth reading again, and then um, we're going to go on. Verse 7, look, the word of God spread... The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So the fix um, set them free. There, there was a, an arrangement made where the apostles set up this uh, pantry program and fed everybody equally, and life returned to gladness and wholeness and excitement again. Stephen was a very significant Part of that. But smooth sailing didn't last very long. I, I guess I want to say that uh, the man speaking right now struggles with that fact. For a long time, I, I have had a theology that didn't serve me well. It's the theology that if you're walking with Jesus and truly are humble, in, uh, Micah 6 8, do justly love mercy and walk humbly with your God. If you're that woman, or that man, and you, you, you spend time with Jesus every day, then when a storm hits your life, you, you're, <clears throat> you're shocked. You have words come out of your mouth like, why? Why me? What did I do? 
And have you had that? Raise your hand if you can relate at all to what I'm describing in my own story. It's, it is. Yeah, some of your hands are like, and, and you go, what's the deal here? Well, my theology was incorrect. You'll see why in a moment. Because Jesus actually said, if you love me, you walk with me, you live for me, get ready. They won't like you. Some will hate you. Some will kill you. I don't want that for my life. I, I, that, those words were hard. They were right from Jesus, you'll see. So I've had to understand some things differently, and this week was no, no exception because the story that's in front of us involving Stephen, who was just this, I know, get over the fact that we share a name. It, it was like he walked well. He was this guy back in verse 3 that was described as he was known to be full of the spirit and of wisdom. He's that guy. They repeat verse 5, um, Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And, and the others, there were seven of them, right? Okay, so these guys, they had it going. Now see Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power. Verse 8 is where you think it's going to go on and be a happy story forever. He performed great wonders and signs among the people. And then verse 9 shows up, the very next sentence. You see in this with your own eyes, you should be shocked when you read, opposition rose, however. From members of the synagogue of the freedmen, we don't need to go there. The fact is, these are guys that, um, that, that, that had a, um, a sideways spirit, let's call it that. And they're from various places in the provinces of uh, Asia and Cilicia. And they began to... What's it say there in verse 9? Argue with Stephen. We just read in verse 8, he was full of God's grace and power. Verse 9, no evidence that anything had changed in his spirit. They began to argue with him. But they could not stand up against the wisdom of the spirit because God had given it to him and spoken through him. Verse 11, then they secretly took another path. Secretly persuading some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. That would be like an insurrection. W words that are worthy of, of death. Were they effective? Verse 12. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, I'll say. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin by force. Okay, I'm sure he did not resist. His spirit was too tender to the spirit to, to uh, you know, fight him off. And they produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against, against this holy place, referring to the temple. And against the law, referring to Moses. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And look at verse 15. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. There's two reasons. One were given, the other you can imagine. The first reason is, is not given. And that's they're looking at him like, you're kidding. 
you said this? Are these things coming from your lips? That's not given here. But what is given is what they saw. See how verse 15 ends? And they saw that Stephen's face was like the face of an angel. <laughs> right? I mean, take it in, y'all. He's not just going to grab the mic and go, okay, now it's my turn. That's not true. That's not true. No. He doesn't say a word yet. He just, Whoa. right? I mean, it's a huge moment. I mean, you picture an angel showing up. Picture Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace. Uh-oh. One, two, three. What's the fourth guy doing there? It's that moment. The brilliance of that fourth guy is Jesus Christ. He was, he was present there. He's present here, as you'll see now. Um, the, the fullness of Stephen's power, you can break down the verses we just read. I hope you'll do that. But um, he uses his gifts to minister to people, verse 8. And, and then, however, there's, there's little time to go, wow, that's amazing. He not only walks with God, he touches people. What a cool thing. What a, what, a way, what a nice template for our life, right? You walk with God and touch people. He was doing it, verse 8. And then, and then without any time to go, man, I want to be like Stephen. Um, then, then there's this impressive, I'm going to call it introduction, is the big let's, bugs arrive, big bugs. And they're like biting flies, and, and, and they go after him. They take aim at Stephen, verse 9. And, and he's so articulate, they couldn't touch him. They, you know, what are you going to do? It actually says that. He, he, he just had so much, it quieted them. Um, there's this uh, amazing thing, if you want to go deeper in verse 11. So how did they persuade people? It wasn't... Um, it sounds like they're persuasive. Well, money talks, and there's a Greek word here that's used in verse 11. They secretly persuaded some men to say. Do you see those two words? Um, it's likely some word referencing incentives, i.e., they bribed them, they paid them. So these people that stood up and spoke uh, contrary things about Stephen were probably on the take. They were being paid to do so. Interesting. Um, and, of course, they lay it out as a capital crime, blasphemy, and they knew that the consequence of that would be death. Uh, by the way, you may have noticed that these accusations clearly parallel um, things that were said, oh, at Jesus' trial just in recent memory, right? Same stuff. Uh, you can read that in John chapter 2. But, um, so those Stephen's accusers, are they're, they're gutsy. They are cunning accusers, determined to discredit him. Um, they were probably unaware of just what this radiance in verse 15 represented. And, uh, and it represented, of course, a fullness of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to take you back just in your memory of the Bible to 
another great leader. Actually, the leader he's accused of taking a shot at, Moses. Remember him on the mountain, Mount Sinai? When he came down after being up there for 40 days, what does the Bible report about that? Yeah, it's just, he was with God, right? Um, Tomorrow morning when you get up and look in the mirror in the morning, I got an assignment for you, okay? All right, despite what you see in the mirror, making sure I'm getting eye contact with everybody, Despite what you see, I want you to be heard if you live with somebody. Okay. <laughs> Which will be true if the Holy Spirit lives in you, right? I love it. Okay. I expect emails this week to confirm that you carried out the, the pastor's assignment, okay? Um. I'm going to just interject a word that was not here, but I was looking everywhere for it. If you're Stephen in this moment, where's the look of terror on your face? These are the accusers, the condemners, and the executioners all gathered here. He had no uh, um, due process, no defense. Caiaphas asks us, he's the high priest, asks a simple question. There's four words. And they begin um, the next chapter and Stephen's response. The high priest asks Stephen, are these charges true? In that moment, you would expect somewhere Luke would say he swallowed hard. He tried to get his composure knowing that they were hanging on every word in a, in a way to condemn him. It's not fair. Um, what would you do in this moment? How much would you say in this moment? Uh, <clears throat> I think what he's about to say, though he was accused of speaking trash about the temple and about Moses, his response to them had the effect of saying, you know, I wasn't against Moses. I, I, I don't think that's correct at all to conclude that. In fact, I'm actually quite like Moses. Uh, and he goes on through this next section, um, the whole chapter, uh, describing um, a storyline that takes you all the way back to Abraham. I'm aware of the clock. This is about a 10-minute read. So you guys want to vote? Should we read all of chapter 7? All right, let's do it. All right. So from chapter 2 to chapter, uh, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 2 to verse um, 53, there's a few more words he speaks, but this is a long section, so I'll shut up and read. Here we go. To the question, are these charges true? He replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. He goes all the way back there. While he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, 
Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land that I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living, says Stephen. I'll repeat that along the way. He gave him no inheritance here, nor even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him, we talked about that, he produces what he promises. God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child, thus no inheritance, right? No, no descendants, rather. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and it's not going to go good for them there. They will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish that nation that they serve as slaves, God said. And afterwards, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Referring to Jerusalem and Israel. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac. By the way, he was a hundred. He was an old man. Uh, and he circumcised Isaac, his son, eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob had a bunch of sons. He was the father of the 12 patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they, <laughs> which is so easy to read, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. I mean, that's just, uh, but God was with him and rescued him from all of his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over, not Israel, over Egypt and all of his palace. Then a famine struck all of Egypt and Israel, or Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could find no food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent his forefathers, our forefathers, on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph revealed to his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family numbering 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had, brought, had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill the promise he had made to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, who didn't know anything about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. And he dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. And when he was placed outside, meaning... Um, to comply with the law, this horrible law, Pharaoh's daughter, an Egyptian Pharaoh's daughter, took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated then in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and in action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. Remember, he's a Jew. He's an Israelite. But everybody thinks he's an Egyptian the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So anyway, he sees, he goes out to visit his people, the Israelites, who have no idea who he is. 
And he saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he intervened, went to his defense, and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was, in fact, using him to rescue them. But they didn't. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, hey, men, men, stop. You're brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? And one of the men who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside. You, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian. It's a long hike east and south. To settle in a, as a foreigner there in Midian and had two sons. And for 40 years... Uh, and after 40 years, an angel appeared to him in the flame of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight, I think I would be. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look up. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and I've come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected. Uh, they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? But he's a 40 year older, uh, 40 years older. He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself, though the angel who appeared to him, uh, through the angel who appeared to him in the, in the bush. And he led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. Verse 36, by the way, is a single verse that describes, uh, I would call, uh, God's um, greatest hits. If, if God had a list of most um, well, by far, the most talked about miracle in the Bible is verse 36, the deliverance, parting of the sea, all the way God took care of his people, all of that part of a story God never stopped talking about, Old and New Testament, really big deal. Anyway, verse 37, this is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us, speaking of Moses. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will, will make us see little gods there. Um, golden calf, think of that. Make us gods who will go before us. And as for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf, and they brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars, the pagan things of the people around them. This agrees with what was written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings? Forty years in the wilderness, people of Israel, did you? You've taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile be beyond Babylon. 
Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Do you, can I stop and just say there's not an interruption of any kind happening here by the Sanhedrin. So verse 45, after receiving the tabernacle, let me continue. Our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out from before them. It remained, remained in the land until the time of David who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. A statement that's repeated again and again. Where does he live now? In the hearts of people that have surrendered to him and invited him to come live inside them. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or well, where will my resting place be? Has not the, uh, my hand made all of those things? I want to stop for a second here. Because what's about to take place is one of the most dramatic and um, impossible to miss changes of tone. Up to this point, Stephen, from verse 2 to verse 50, has covered about 1,100 years. Going all the way back to Abraham and all the way forward, you heard it through David and Solomon. Solomon left the scene in 930 B.C., about 1,100 years, long time. And the rest was the divided kingdoms, north, Samaria, south, Jerusalem, Judea, and, um, and, and it ultimately led to captivity and the demise of the temple and, um, and Jerusalem and the restoration promises that the, the post-exilic prophets would announce. A lot of cool stuff, but this is all that Stephen covers in his uh, response. He was bold, um, but right now you're about to catch a sh shift in his tone that is incredibly, um, if that was history, this was history's impact. If that was a uh, a lecture about the past. This was right now, right here. You stiff-necked people. Can you hear it? Verse 51, it changes it to a finger pointed at the Sanhedrin itself. I apologize for pointing at you. You're not the Sanhedrin. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. In other words, Nothing I just said matters to you. It did not change a thing for you. You're just like your ancestors who always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? What did prophets do? They spoke to the people for God with the exception of Habakkuk. These prophets did that and every single time you pushed back. You said, I don't need to hear it. And then you went further and persecuted. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered Jesus. You, have you, you who received the law that was given through the angels but have not obeyed it. 
Those are three verses that are hard to hear if you're the Sanhedrin. And they were done hearing. Um, the murder, the murdering of the Messiah with a finger pointed at them was like tip over time. You just, they went, narrowed their focus and got ready to do, deal with business here. They, in fact, were guilty of breaking the law, the very thing that they had charged Stephen of doing. Uh, there's a very, um, at the end of this story, I'm going to read it now. It ends at verse 60. Uh, <clears throat> the, this chapter, and really this true story, ends in a collision that's both predictable and it's really astonishing. Verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing there at the right hand of God. The audience didn't see any of that. At this, they covered their ears and yelled at the top of their voices as they rushed at him, dragging him out of the temple and out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. We'll learn more about him in the days to come. While they were stoning, stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, don't, don't hold this against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. remarkable conclusion raises a couple of amazing yeah it's a uh, I've read it so many times this week because I was I was hoping you would want to hear the whole thing and didn't go no the roast is in the oven or something can I tell you this a couple of things these are personal to me and maybe maybe they're close to what you're thinking after hearing all this how did Stephen how did he present an indicting message to a raging and infuriated audience? I could go into all the nuances and details, but I found the answer. I did. I was bothered by that. I thought, I don't think I could do that. I don't think I could be that Stephen. I'm this Stephen. That's not me. But you know what? I found his secret. It's mentioned five times. It's actually mentioned uh, seven times if you include... Two times he says, look, verse 55, he says, he says, um, he looked up, see that? And then verse 56, he says in his own words, look. So he saw something. That was an impression I had. His eyes were on Jesus, not on them. Look, look. When troubles come your way, when threats come my way, who do I look at? But, but even that look won't change everything. Here's the thing that occurs five different times. The expression, he was full of the Holy Spirit. Five times we're told that about Stephen. That's a big deal. 
It's not to be missed. And he did that. Um, he, he said what he said. He, he was able to present this indicting message, which effectively said, you know what? I wasn't disrespectful of Moses or Abraham or any of the others. You're the ones that are disrespectful. I care about that. And, and how do you say that? Knowing the fury that was going to come. Well, so the secret's not really a secret at all. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And, he, and you can look it up again in the section just we've read here today, five different times, full of the Holy Spirit. What's more, I think he realized and heard the words that Jesus said when he predicted that this kind of stuff would happen. Jesus said, this is going to go down like this. Remember his words, these words last night with his disciples. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. He said that the night he was arrested, Jesus did. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If, this is John 15, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Maybe that's what was going on in his mind. Jesus said it would go like this. If they obeyed my teaching, they, they would obey yours too. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without a reason. Can you say it any more directly than light came into the world and people hated the light and ran from it, chose darkness instead of light? That's a little bit of my first reaction. My second reaction is this. How did... How did Stephen, it's even a harder one for me to answer. How did Stephen pray for his haters despite their vicious violence? I, I, sometimes when I see evil, I just mutter to myself, I go, you'll get yours. He knows where you live, you know. I don't know. I know it's not Christian, but it's like, get them, God, burn them. Smoke them. Are you concerned your pastor talks like that? I'm sorry if, if that bothers you. That's just, sometimes I'm just like, you can't fix people like that. God, come back. Where does Stephen find the ability to actually, I don't think he was faking it. I don't think he was like, I'm going to die. That's about the last rock. I better pray so it gets written in the record that I pray. No. It was this holy moment. Where did he get that? Uh, Jesus. Right? Who prayed those exact two prayers. On a cross. Jesus prayed what Stephen's praying. Receive my spirit, Father. And then he said, and don't hold this against them. They don't know what they're doing. I, um, <clears throat> I'd like you to um, bow your heads with me at this time. And I want to read words to you that come from a song we're going to sing. And uh, the background, I believe, of what sustained 
Stephen and made it possible for him to pray. Lord, receive my spirit, just like Jesus said. And don't hold this against them. I think it was someone he saw when he looked up. And uh, reminded me of the counsel given in Hebrews 12. When we're told to run with endurance this race that is set before us, we're told how to run it, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy before him, he endured the cross. He scorned its shame and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And then the writer tells every one of us in this room, every one of us hearing this message, consider Jesus who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. God, we need help to live like Stephen in a world that's hard to live like Stephen. Um, I tried to change the tone when I captured his voice because I truly believe that he had a tenderness that could only be there by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And um, it's not lost on me the final words of his story. After he had said all of that, he fell asleep. In that moment, as a result of the resurrection of Easter Sunday, Lord Jesus, Stephen was face to face with you. And worship right now is our response, at least part of our response, to you, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, who was and is and is to come. I know you have a stir in your soul right now, church. I do. This final song is a, a way to sort of focus that stir. These words are part of it. Holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder and show me who you are and fill me with your heart and then lead me in your love to those around me. My prayer is going to be, Holy Spirit, Open my eyes in wonder. Just the way you did Stephen's eyes. And, and then as I get a, a clear view of you as he did, then send me from this place um, sustained by you and sent by you to a world who needs to see you and hear of you. Let's join together in this song. And I would, uh, I would invite you to stand now or when you feel prompted to in your spirit to talk to Jesus, to lift your eyes up and see him as you sing in response to him.